Welcome to Immigration Nerds. This podcast is for everyone seeking the details, context, and facts behind the banner headlines on immigration. It's the podcast that gives you the latest on immigration policy and politics and the real world impacts on the people and businesses that make our world turn. If you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Brought to you by the nerds at Erickson Immigration Group, guiding clients and their employees through the complex immigration system for over 20 years. Hello, immigration nerds. I'm Lauren Clark, senior attorney at Erickson Immigration Group. I am a fellow nerd, an immigrant, and host of this amazing podcast. On every episode, we'll be joined by the smartest nerds in the know as we cover trends in business, culture, technology, and politics at the intersection of global immigration. Today, we are back. It's been a minute since we dropped our last episode, and we've taken the time to up our game. One thing that hasn't changed, our study of immigration policy, our keen attention to what's happening on the Hill, celebration of immigrant stories, and exploring the latest academic research. If you are an immigration nerd like all of us, then you know details matter. And on this show, we're the kind of nerds who make the details easier to understand. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll explore the U.S. State Department's program designed to welcome Ukrainians fleeing Russia's invasion, Uniting for Ukraine, with Ilya Soman, Professor of Law at George Mason University. Professor Soman and his wife sponsored a Ukrainian family through the Uniting for Ukraine program. And here's some great insight into what's working and what's not. But first, we're going to get started with a quick roundup of recent immigration news that we should all be aware of. And I know just the right nerd for that. Hey, Lauren, how are you today? Hi, Rob. I'm great. That's my colleague, Rob Taylor, partner at Ericsson Immigration Group. Thanks for joining the relaunch special. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. And I'm really happy to keep our audience updated on the latest in immigration news and headlines. So what tops the list today? As with immigration, there's hardly anything that ever happens, so we have very little to talk about. Uh, Just kidding. Uh, We've actually got a lot to talk about. So most recently, January the 4th, USCIS proposed a new fee increase. Uh, This is particularly aimed at business immigration petitions. The fee increases are pretty significant. They range anywhere from 150% up to a 2,000% increase. So this is very important for those filing I-129s, I-140s, I-45s and could definitely have a significant impact on an employer's ability to sponsor a worker, either for a visa or a green card. Um, I think the good news is these fees are not likely to go into effect any earlier than Q4 of this year. And it's also very likely that they could face litigation due to the substantial increase and the fact that it could detriment companies' abilities to sponsor foreign workers. So we'll have to see how this plays out as the uh, fee increase and notice period continue. But as of right now, we're keeping a close eye on it and we'll keep everyone updated if we if we have more news as to when it will go into effect and exactly how it will impact our clients. Awesome. What else do you have? So I think another big one was just announced a settlement in Edicani versus Mayorkas. So this was particularly important because it was focused on the ability of individuals to file concurrent H-1B and H-4 petitions, as well as L-1 and L-2 petitions. And this is important because historically, USCIS allowed for these applications to be filed concurrently and also allowed for them to be adjudicated at the same time, meaning that if a spouse of a H-1B or a spouse of an L-1 was applying for employment authorization, 
they could have their application adjudicated at the same time as the primary beneficiary's application. Uh, but under the Trump administration, they decided that these applications should be separated and treated as standalone applications. The result of that was that these H4 uh, extensions, L2 extensions, as well as their EADs uh, went into very long backlogs. And these dependent spouses were oftentimes losing their ability to work here in the U.S. because of lengthy adjudication. And so under this settlement agreement, USCIS has agreed to allow uh, these applications to be filed concurrently and adjudicated together. And so this will enable spouses to not lose work authorization and not face these lengthy backlogs. Um, this will go into effect for any petition that's filed after January the 25th. Um, as of right now, they're saying that it will not apply retroactively. So if those petitions have already been filed, they're not going to allow for concurrent adjudication, but there is the option going forward to have this. And, and hopefully once the cases start moving more quickly going forward, any cases in the backlog will also be adjudicated more quickly. And I think a key thing to note there is that it is the concurrent filing. They must be filed together to benefit from this decision, which is a huge win for the immigration community. That's correct. Yep. We're, we're very excited about this and uh, really grateful for, for how the settlement turned out because it's going to provide a lot, of, a lot more security to the foreign nationals that we represent. Definitely. And is there any word on the upcoming H-1B cap season dates? There has. So it's been announced that starting at noon on March the 1st, they will begin accepting registrations up until noon Eastern on March the 17th. And then the lottery is expected to be completed by the end of March so that folks can start filing on April the 1st. Now that was exactly the right immigration nerd for that. So thanks, Rob. Now for a conversation focused on the American response to the refugee crisis in Ukraine. On April 21st of last year, Uniting for Ukraine was announced as America's immigration program to welcome Ukrainians fleeing Russia's invasion. Participation in the program requires Ukrainians must have a supporter in the United States who agrees to provide them with financial support for the duration of their stay. Joining us now is an American citizen who stepped forward and did just that. Ilya Soman, Professor of Law at George Mason University. Welcome to the Immigration Nerds Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Professor Soman, you wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post early this month where you discussed your personal participation in Uniting for Ukraine. The program has already helped some 100,000 Ukrainians to enter the United States. Can you talk us about how you and your wife sponsored a family of three from Ukraine and why you decided to participate? Sure. As you said, the a uh, program enables Ukrainians to enter the U.S., but only if they have a private sponsor who is a current U.S. citizen or permanent resident. And therefore, I, along with my wife, we decided that we would do that. And as it turned out, the process is fairly easy. And especially by the standards of the immigration system, it actually is also very quick. Essentially, uh, once you find the person or the group that you're going to sponsor, all you then have to do is go to the USCIS website, the website of the federal government agency, which deals with these matters and fill out a form, which used to be called I-134. Now it's I-134A, a little bit different, but basically when you fill out this form that asks you some information, particularly about your, your finances and the like, and you also provide some information about the people you're gonna sponsor, then you can submit, the, submit it electronically and you get a response usually very quickly. Uh, in our case, within just nine days, 
which is incredibly fast by the standards of the usually completely sporadic and dysfunctional federal government immigration bureaucracy. Uh, there is obviously the issue of how do you find the person that you sponsor? Uh, some people, they just already have contacts in Ukraine and therefore they know who they want to sponsor if they have a friend or a relative or the like. In our case, we did not have that, but we were able to make use of the Welcome Connect website, which is essentially a kind of matching website where potential sponsors can put up a profile and so can Ukrainians who want to find a sponsor and then they can contact each other. And if their needs uh, align, then they can agree to do the sponsorship and then file the form. It's almost like an online dating website, though I should emphasize that finding people to date is not actually the purpose of this thing, but it too works very quickly. And they are going to expand it actually to also include the four additional countries to which the Biden administration recently expanded private refugee sponsorship, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Haiti. So the Welcome Connect website is working to create a similar matching system for them. What can you tell us, Professor Soman, about the improvements you think the program needs? And do you see it as a scalable solution that policymakers should be building on? Yeah, there are two major shortcomings of Uniting for Ukraine and now also of the expansion of this system to other countries. One is that at least under current policy, while the people immediately get the right of residency and work permits in the U.S., it only lasts for two years. And obviously it is very likely that these refugee crises will still be going on, or even if they're somehow over, people who have established a new life in the U.S., it's very problematic to say, well, now you have to go back. It's an issue for the immigrants themselves, but it also reduces the contribution they can make to our economy and society, because obviously it's much more difficult to set up a new life and to invest and work if you know you may be deported or at least be eligible for deportation within two years. The second limitation is that this thing rests almost entirely on executive discretion, on the so-called parole power of the president. And if the president wants to, he can potentially revoke the program at any time. And that also creates a kind of insecurity as if the political winds shift, either this president or perhaps more likely a successor could just revoke everything. And therefore the people would once again no longer have legal status and be potentially subject to deportation. So ideally, the time period should be extended. That part potentially could just be done by the president on his own if he wanted to. And also, the program should be authorized by Congress and the discretion to just simply repeal it at any time should be taken away. So it would be desirable to fix those two problems before the two-year time limits start coming up and we end up with yet more people who are not allowed to work legally and also are potentially subject to deportation at any time. I would add that the real mechanism of support here is not so much the private sponsor. Their role is at most going to be transitional. It's rather the fact that the people are eligible to work upon arrival, and that is the way that they will really be supported in the long term. And that is actually the really important thing that the migrants get. It's the right to live and work in the United States, which is much more significant than any financial assistance most sponsors would be able to provide. And that also is what makes it sustainable in that the idea here is not that you get a class of people who are permanently dependent on their sponsors. 
rather the sponsor can potentially help with a transition, but the real source of support is the fact that they're going to work, which is the way it works actually with immigrants throughout history by and large, that they work and actually do so at higher rates even than native-born citizens do. A very important point there. Let's focus on the 100,000 people who have utilized the program to come to the U.S. so far. Can you put that number in perspective for everyone listening? For example, how many other refugees from around the world were allowed to enter into the U.S. last year? And can you clarify the question of whether there is a cap when it comes to Uniting for Ukraine? So actually, there is no cap on Uniting for Ukraine. This is actually a common misunderstanding. Last spring, the White House did say, the president said that he would be aiming for 100,000, but he never actually put a numerical cap into the program. And so legally speaking, there isn't one. And we probably are already over the 100,000 number right now. To put this in perspective, in all fiscal year 2022, the number of refugees admitted through the traditional refugee system throughout all of the world was approximately 25,000. That's low by historical standards, but it's still striking that it's that much lower. Obviously, refugee admissions is not the only source of U.S. immigration. Nonetheless, uniting for Ukraine is already a substantial part of total immigration uh, of the last year or so. Before the pandemic, the U.S. averaged approximately a million or so new immigrants per year, so 100,000 is a substantial proportion of that. And as it continues, it will be more. The new expansion of private sponsorship, which has been extended to four additional countries, there is a cap of that of 30,000 per month from all four countries combined. Nonetheless, if they reach the total annual amount of that, of, which would equal to around 360,000 plus another 100,000 or more from Uniting for Ukraine, just with these five countries, this would be probably something like a third or more of the total annual immigration to the U.S. And of course, the system could be expanded further. The reason why this has become such a large part of the total system is because for most other types of migration visas, they're extremely difficult to get, often take a long time. And for many people who might want to immigrate, the so-called line that they have to get in, it's a line that lasts so long that they probably won't get to the head of it during their lifetimes. Whereas if you're from one of these five countries and you find a sponsor, you would be able to enter potentially within just a few days after you know submitting the paperwork. So this, therefore, is already a very substantial part of the total immigration system, and it could potentially get bigger. You are listening to the Immigration Nerds podcast, brought to you by the nerds at Erickson Immigration Group. I'm your host, Lauren Clark, and we are continuing now with Professor Ilya Soman from George Mason University. Let's talk about equity for a minute. What can you say about the concerns some critics have about all of those who have been waiting in line for a chance to immigrate? Who remains stuck in the process? I think the, there is an inequity, but the solution to the inequity is leveling up, not leveling down. That is, rather than complain about how the Ukrainians and now some uh, citizens of these other four countries, which are in horrible straits, that they can get in quickly, the real injustice is that other people are kept out even though in many cases they too are suffering horrible oppression. They suffer from also poverty and war in many cases as well. And the injustice is that they get kept out and we can remedy that by extending this model to them as well. Or we could potentially go further 
and even eliminate the need for a sponsor and just let people come in if they meet some very minimal criteria and the like and issue them visas quickly, which doesn't necessarily require a sponsor. Uh, so ideally, we should extend this system to cover everyone in similar straits, but we also should recognize that the best should not be the enemy of the good. If for reasons of political feasibility, it is not possible to extend this to everybody who where it would be right to do so, that doesn't mean that the solution is to give it to nobody. That means that we should do what is feasible now and do more later. 100%. And I think looking at immigration policy as a whole, and particularly uniting for Ukraine, a small action is better than no action. The benefits being derived by Ukrainians now is laying groundwork for benefits to be extended to additional countries in a similar program. I understand that you came to the United States from Russia as a child in a similar program. Is that what led you to the law and immigration policy? So what led me to be interested in immigration policy, while it was somewhat my own background as an immigrant, it was actually more my previous work on voting with your feet domestically in federal systems. Beginning early in my career as an academic, I wrote extensively about that and about how it can create massive increases in freedom and opportunity for people. And also that voting with your feet within federal systems, that often it can provide a better mechanism of political choice than voting at the ballot box. This is true for a number of different reasons that I get into in some of my books and articles. Uh, But it gradually occurred to me that international migration, it's also a mechanism of voting with your feet. And indeed, the potential gains are even greater because the difference in quality of government between countries is so much larger than any difference that we observe within countries. If you think of whatever you believe is the best governed U.S. state and compare it to whatever is everything is the worst, it might be a big difference, but it's very small compared to, say, the United States versus Cuba. And once I recognize this parallel between the domestic foot voting and the international kind, I extended my research to cover both. And eventually I wrote a book called Freedom Move, which is about foot voting generally and about how there is a significant commonality that is often overlooked between the domestic and the international variety. So ironically, it was less my background as an immigrant than my background as a scholar of federalism and democracy that led me sort of down the path about, of writing about these issues. And that in turn helped lead me to decide that we should try to sponsor in the Uniting for Ukraine program when that became a possibility last year. And that was the thesis of your book entitled Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration and Political Freedom, correct? Yes, that we can greatly enhance political choice and also freedom and human well-being of various other kinds by expanding opportunities for people to vote with their feet, both domestically and internationally. And I also address a wide variety of possible objections to this, particularly objections to free international migration rights. But if you look at those objections more carefully and think about them consistently, almost all of them are actually also objections to domestic freedom of movement. So if you take them seriously, it would imply that, for instance, maybe there should be more restrictions on people moving from Texas to California or vice versa. If you apply to that the same kind of reasoning that many people like to apply to international migration. For example, if you worry that letting in poor people would overburden the welfare system or increase the crime rate or lead to having voters that vote for bad government policies, 
all of that can happen just as easily, sometimes more easily, if people move from California to Texas and are allowed to do so freely, or from West Virginia to Virginia. I myself live in the state of Virginia and West Virginia is right next door. They're much poorer than we are. Their voting patterns are somewhat different from ours. They have a higher crime rate. So you could say, unless we keep out all those West Virginians or apply quote unquote extreme vetting to them, uh, you know, they might overburden our welfare system. They might lead to us having bad voters or more bad voters. They might increase our crime rate uh, and so on. Professor Ilya Soman of George Mason University, thank you so much for joining us today on the Immigration Nerds podcast. Thanks for having me on the show, Laura, and it was great to be with you. And thank you to all the nerds out there listening. You can track everything going on at Ericsson Immigration Group at our website, eiglaw.com. And remember, if you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Subscribe and share and meet us right back here for another new episode of Immigration Nerds.